Clicker's not working. Oh, there we go. Thank you, guys. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 10, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening we do rejoice in the gospel, even as we've just heard these two gospel testimonies, these two sinners that were plucked from death to life by faith in Christ alone. So many of us have that same testimony, that same amazing work of God, the amazing grace of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would never grow tired of hearing these testimonies. And I pray this evening, even as we turn our attention to 2 Samuel 10, that we would see the call to be brave, to work hard for your glory, trusting in your sovereignty, knowing that when we see you right, that we then can live right. We understand the greatness of our God, we will understand the greatness of the task before us, and we will work all the harder. So I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in us, and that you would be honored this evening through this passage. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, have you ever had a change of plans? Maybe you were planning something, and then something came up last minute and, and completely blew it up. I think I've told this story before, but when I think of a change of plans, my mind goes back to when I was a 16 to 17-year-old student. Uh, I was a junior in high school, I believe. I had had the opportunity to go to China with my grandparents, and they were staying in China a little bit longer, going to visit some missionaries. I was flying back, so I flew back by myself as a 16, 17-year-old from China to the United States, and uh, my layover was in I had a layover in, I think it was L.A. and then in Newark, and then I was going to get back uh, to Greenville, South Carolina. And I got into Newark about 10 o'clock at night, and uh, I was waiting for my, my plane. I made it to my gate. I got a little snack. I was exhausted. I was ready to get home. I turned on my cell phone that I had had with me, but I didn't bring the charge or anything because I, yeah, I didn't need it in China. So I turned it on, it had maybe 10% battery, and I uh, called my parents, let them know I'm in Newark, getting ready to come home. I turned my phone off, stick it in my pocket, and uh, within the next few minutes, find out that my flight is canceled, and it's the last flight out of Newark. So here I am, as a 16 to 17 year old, stranded in Newark, New York, with an almost, Newark, New Jersey, with an almost dead cell phone, and uh, no money. I'd just been in China, so I, just, of all the money I took with me, at the end of the trip, I had just a few dollars left, and I had no idea what to do. That was a shocking change of plans. And uh, I called my parents. I turned my cell phone back on with a little bit of juice I had left. I called my parents, and uh, as you can imagine, they're freaking out down in South Carolina, all these miles away from me. And uh, my dad tells, tells me, right, well, just you, I guess, find a place in the airport, get comfortable spend the night there, I'll take care of getting your ticket changed, and, and we'll talk again in the morning. So I turn my cell phone off. So then I start following the crowd as they're making their way out of the airport. I didn't know what to do, so I'm just following them, thinking that we're all supposed to go this way. And by the grace of God, I don't know why this man picked me out of the crowd, but a security guy caught me, and he pulled me over from the crowd, and he said, you know if you go past this point, you'll be out on the streets all night. If you're going to stay in the airport, you have to stay on this side of this line. And uh, if I would have gone across that line, I would, I would have not been a fun night. Um, 
So I ended up staying in the airport. Uh, it was the longest night I, I didn't sleep. Uh, I'd already not slept for like two days, having flown from China. I don't sleep well on airplanes. And so I was up for another day, another night. And uh, finally, it worked out the next day. I was able to get home. But it was a change of plans. A change of plans where everything was outside of my control. There was, there was nothing that I could do. And even though there's a little bit my parents could do back in South Carolina, everything was completely out of their hands as well. And how do you, how do you react when things don't go according to plan? That's what we see here in 2 Samuel 10. Things don't go according to plan. And yet the way that we see David and the men under him reacts, it tells us about the character of these men. There's two points that I have this evening. Betrayal and war. The first point we see in the first five verses of chapter 10 is betrayal. The chapter starts this way. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died. The king died. And Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. This Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon, is first mentioned in 1 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 2. He's mentioned in that context as an enemy of Saul, an enemy of Israel. It's likely that, that David's run-in with Nahash goes back to that time that Nahash had served as an ally to David during Saul's reign as David was on the run. This is the connection between these two men. In fact, this language, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father shown kindness to me. You may remember from last week, that word kindness, that's one of the themes of 2 Samuel chapter 9. Why is it that David shows kindness to Mephibosheth? Is it not because he has made a covenant with his family before God? This word kindness, it's tied to the idea of a covenant. It carries the idea of loyalty or faithfulness, fulfilling what you have promised. So likely during this time, David and Nahash have made some kind of covenant while David was on the, front, was on the run from Saul. Now that David has risen to the throne, he has kept his promise to Nahash. And now as Nahash has died, and his son Hanan has taken the throne... David comes to him of his own accord. He comes to Anon to assure him that as far as David is concerned, the covenant still stands. I will show you kindness now as your father showed me kindness before. I will be faithful as your father was faithful. This is the setting. It seems like a normal transaction. It seems like something that you would expect. It seems like something that Hanan would be thankful for, and they would go on, and both countries would thrive, and, and, and we go on. That's not what we find. In fact, David sends his servants to go and to comfort Hanan. But there's some princes around Hanan. And rather than trusting David, 
They begin to question him. Do you, do you think, Anon, that, that David really honors your father? Has not rather David sent his servants to search out the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Now, maybe there is some wisdom in that day and age, and really in any day and age, and not just right out trusting someone, but in being cautious towards something like this, in searching it out. But what we find in Hanan's response here in verses 4 and following is not mere caution, rather foolish overreaction. Essentially, the actions that Hanan takes here is a declaration of war against David and Israel. Based on the word of these princes, Hanan takes David's servants who have come to show their, their loyalty, to comfort him in this time. They have come in humility, and yet he takes them and he shaves off half their beards. He cuts off their garments. He humiliates them and sends them back. See, it's here in 2 Samuel 10 that the story takes a surprising turn. As I hinted at, at the beginning, all the way back in 2 Samuel 5, David took the throne of Israel as promised by God. David fulfilled his pro God fulfilled his promise. Going on into chapter 6, we see David then as having taken authority, having taken control, sitting on the throne. One of the first acts he does is to move the ark to Jerusalem, placing God back in the center where he belongs. It's in 2 Samuel 7 then that God comes to David and gives him these amazing promises of the Davidic covenant. God is going to do some awesome things through David and for David. Building on that, going into 2 Samuel 8, David drives out Israel's enemies. He's securing her borders. Her storehouses are overflowing. Israel is thriving. It's in that context we get to 2 Samuel 9 where David turns his eyes back home and he's faithful to his own promises. He keeps his word. He's bringing justice to everyone. He's a just and a good king. So everything we've seen from 2 Samuel 5 to 6 to 7 to 8 and to 9, everything is going well. The nation is thriving. David is standing out as a model king. And then we come to 2 Samuel 10. The expectation, leaving 2 Samuel 9, coming to 2 Samuel 10, even in the first two verses of 2 Samuel 10, the expectation is peace. But David is betrayed. Just like that, everything turns on its head. And the question here is, how will David and his men react when their expectations don't match reality? You see, it's easy to trust God. In the promise and victory of 2 Samuel 5 to 9. It's easy to trust God when things are going great. But what about in the betrayal of 2 Samuel 10? Is God still on the throne? Do his promises still stand? 
Is he still good? We've likely all been at some point in our life in a place where we've asked some of those same questions. Maybe it's not as dramatic as David finds himself here in 2 Samuel 10, but likely the circumstances in your life that have caused you to ask some of those questions have been very difficult. When you've really had to wrestle with your faith, do I really believe this? It was easy up until this point to trust God, but now that this has come in and my whole world has been flipped upside down, is God who he said he is? I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a place like that or not. That's where David finds himself here in 2 Samuel 10. His expectations now don't meet his reality. And everything that that he has worked so hard for, everything that God has given him, everything that he thought God was is now, what's he going to do? What we find in verse 6 and following is that David goes to war. And the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, which is not a surprise given the actions that they have taken. The people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Makkah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. I mean, this situation is spiraling out of control, it is serious. The Ammonites who have picked this fight now realize that they are not strong enough to win the fight on their own. So they're hiring out mercenary soldiers from one of Israel's greatest rivals in the regions, in in the region. There is no way out of this now. War is guaranteed. So David sends Joab with an army of mighty men. And they come to battle. And what you find as they come to battle is that the the Ammonites have put themselves up against the city gate and out in the fields far away you have the Syrians of Zobah, Bethrohab, Ishtoth, and Makkah were out in the fields. And what you have is as Joab comes to fight them, he finds himself surrounded. Verse 9, when Joab saw the battle line was against him, before and behind, He comes to battle and he finds himself trapped, surrounded by the enemy. And the only option now is a situation you do not want to find yourself in battle. Fighting on two fronts. He has to divide his army. I mean, to this point, this situation is getting worse and worse. It is spiraling out of control. We see Joab's response. He chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And then he turns around and the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother. So he takes the best and the strongest and sits them out against the Syrians. And then he takes the numbers and puts them against the other army. A smaller but strong force and a larger force. But note his words here in verse 11 and 12. This is really probably the the middle of the theme of this chapter, verse 12. 
Note Joab's response when he finds himself in this situation. If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. He's talking to Abishai, his brother. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Verse 12, be of good courage. And let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. I mean, what a response. This isn't a man who turns and runs, but who stands firm because he trusts God. It's really shocking coming from Joab because, as we'll find, he's not always this godly. But today, today he's right. Joab encourages his men to be brave and to fight hard, ultimately trusting the result to God's hand. Joab knows that the battle is in the Lord's hand. Bill Arnold, the commentator, notes this. Here Joab illustrates a healthy balance between effort and faith. Effective servants of God will exhaust their resource and energy, doing whatever they can, while also acknowledging that the fruit of their labors is ultimately in God's hands. Or, as someone else has put it, you've probably heard this before, pray like it all depends on God and work like it all depends on you. Joab doesn't throw his hands up. He doesn't run. He doesn't say, well, God, it's in your hands. Send sound fire from heaven and, and destroy them. He prepares for battle. He digs in. And he knows that if God chooses to, God will deliver them. You see, brothers and sisters, when rightly understood, the sovereignty of God is not an excuse to throw your hands up. The sovereignty of God is not an excuse to be lazy. Rather, as Joab here recognizes, the sovereignty of God is a motivator towards faithfulness. Because God is sovereign, I can be faithful. Because I know he is almighty God. That he is Lord of the angel armies. Because I know that everything is in his hand. I can work all the harder knowing that the end is not up to me, it's up to God. I think it's also worth pausing here to recognize, just for a second, the reality that you can tell a lot about a leader by how those under his authority respond and react to their situations that they find themselves in. Bad leadership often produces bad results. The world around us recognizes this reality. Oftentimes what you'll see is a failing company or a struggling branch can often be turned around simply by a positive change in leadership. In fact, is that not what we see taking place in Israel in this chapter under David's leadership? Because it is this same army that so many years earlier stood in fear across from the Philistines under the leadership of Saul until one brave shepherd boy took a stand. Now that same army stands boldly, surrounded by the enemy on all sides, trusting in God to deliver them under the ultimate leadership of that same shepherd boy, now a king. 
As I mentioned before, the picture we get in Scripture of Job is not always as positive as we have here. I would submit to you that Joab's bold faith and his proclamation of that faith that we see here is a direct result of his service under David. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the power of bold, faithful leadership. And that's not just true in the corporate world, but even in your home as well. Your children and your grandchildren, they are watching your example. Just think of the impact that you have on their lives as they see your faithfulness, as they see your boldness. As they see your faithfulness in evangelism, your kindness towards others, mercy that you show. Joab's boldness, Joab's faith, I think it's a direct result of David's leadership. So Joab gets the army together. They, they come to this understanding. They are ready to go. Joab and the people who were with him, verse 13, drew near for the battle against the Syrians. I mean, they are ready to go, and they go forth boldly. And the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing. They also fled before Abishai. When Joab and the mighty men started getting victory against the Syrians, these supposedly great allies that had been hired... And the Ammonites see that. And then they start to run. And it's victory on both fronts. But it's not over. Because you come to verse 15, the Syrians regroup. Hadad, Izar, king of Zobah, sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river. Not only are they regrouping now, they are being reinforced. And you have one final showdown. In fact, the stakes here are so great that David himself goes out to lead the army. Verse 17, when it was told David, he gathered all Israel, he crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shavach, the commander of their army who died there. And when all the kings who were servants of hadad saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. This is a decisive victory. The mighty Syrians to whom the Ammonites have turned for help have been defeated and now serve Israel. This whole situation has been turned on its head. Because David and Joab respond rightly to the situation. They go out to battle and they trust God. They put the results in his hand. In a sense, 2 Samuel 10 is really just a connecting chapter. It's serving to set the stage for what is coming next. In fact, what is coming next will become one of the defining moments of David's life, unfortunately. But 2 Samuel 10 is not also without its lessons. I think there's two specific lessons that we can get from this chapter. 
Number one, trust God. He's a faithful God. He's given David a promise. He's not going to go back on that now. Trust him. Even when the circumstances turn, when everything changes, when it's all out of control, it doesn't change who God is. He's greater than your circumstances. Nothing catches him by surprise. So brothers and sisters, trust God. And in trusting him, a second point of application, work hard. Because God is sovereign. Part of David and Joab's response in this chapter is not just to throw up their hands and say, you know, God, God's made a promise, he'll take care of it. They do what they can. It's because they believe in God's sovereignty and faithfulness that they go out to battle, that they meet the force, that they are able to stand their ground. Because as Joab says, the Lord will do what is good in his sight. And because I believe that in my core, I will stand here and I will fight to the end. Brothers and sisters, Scripture is clear over and over and over again. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. He's a good and a sovereign God. In the New Testament, we have promises like Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for the good of those who are in Christ. And that good may not be your idea of good, but it is always God's idea of good. And God's idea of good is what is really good. That's what you need. So a chapter like this reminds us, trust God in all circumstances and work hard. Work hard to be faithful. Work hard to do what he has called you to because he is a sovereign, faithful God. As we close our service this, this evening, we're going to sing the song, Great and Mighty. Great and mighty is the Lord our God. Great and mighty is he. Let's stand together as we confess these truths as we close our service. Hymn number 12, Great and Mighty.